You know, today we are going to be in Acts chapter 17. Uh, if you want to get there ahead of time, if you have a blue Bible um, from the pew, that's page 785. But that'll give you something to uh, prepare for in anticipation of where we're heading. Uh, we're in the midst of a series we started uh, at the beginning of the year called Human. It's an examination of us to be able to look in the mirror at ourselves. Who are we as human beings uh, and how do we then relate to God, especially in the midst of a world where there are skeptical people of our origins, whereas we think that there is a creator that made everything, that established everything, there uh, has always been a healthy critique of religion and especially Christianity. And uh, in recent years, what's been known as the new atheism, there has been a movement of people to intellectually try to break down Christianity. And, And one of the inspirations of this, and we've quoted before and we will continue to quote, is this author Yuval Noah Harari. And the reason that uh, his books are incredibly popular is because he's a compelling writer, a strong thinker. But, uh, you know, as a person of faith, his, uh, his view stands at odds of our own. So are there places of overlap? Are there aspects of this critique and thinking that actually interplay with our faith? Or are they just repulsed altogether? So um, we'll, we'll be quoting, especially today, from his book, More uh, Homo Deus. If, again, if you've never read these books, they're a deep read, but we'll try to break down some of the concepts as we're looking uh, at what it means for us to be uh, humans and uh, humans who believe that we are formed by the hands of a creator. So as, as by way of introduction, though, I, you know, I don't know if this shift has ever been made in human history, so you might be uh, witnessing something unique here, but I really want to talk about Harry Styles. And I feel it would be appropriate then, and there are other technological ways to do this that are more efficient, but I really, this is how I perceive this happening, so I don't know if, if I hold this up toward my microphone, if this gets to be the soundtrack of this introduction. But I need you to understand Harry Styles. Now this young lad, born in 1994, which is ironically the year that I graduated high school, right? So that's just a long time ago. He grew up in England and had a nondescript life until he realized that he loved to sing and he was quite the entertainer. And he entered then the X Factor competition. In 2010, it was, you know, over in the Great Britons. Uh, This competition was very much like our American Idol, but, you know, it wasn't British Idol. It was the X Factor, and Simon Cowell was in charge of this competition. And, you know, somebody would stand on stage and sing and perform, and they would begin to advance and such. But unfortunately, tragically, Harry did not advance. But that's okay, though, because then there was this opportunity for Harry to join with other young men who did not advance to form what would be known in the business as a boy band. And this boy band would supersede their individuality and yet as a group find their one direction. And yes, it was Harry. It was Harry that actually helped to formulate the singular direction. So the young lad then became musically famous with his other colleagues, the X Factor Rejects, and they made songs that then for some of us have become the soundtrack of our lives.
But not all good things last, and there was the point where Harry decided that it was key for him to become a solo artist. So in 2016, he broke up with the band, and then he moved ahead and found his own voicing. And the album release last year was The Sign of the Times. Now here's the thing. I appreciate the musical abilities, but then if he was just a singular threat, that could be dismissed. But he actually has multiple angles of success, including uh, this last year he was a cast member in the movie Dunkirk, who is, uh, was directed by Christopher Nolan, who unarguably is the greatest movie maker who has ever lived, and everything he touches is gold. And Harry actually distinguished himself to the point that there is talk. Wait a second. There is talk that he could be in line to become the next James Bond. Now here's the issue. The issue is this, is that um, I, I wanted to play that song from my phone as evidence that I actually do have his album on my phone. And I don't know what to do with this. Because as a good red-blooded American man who has his collection of 80s and 90s big glam rock on his phone too, I mean, I do like some indie artists, but the idea that I can sit and listen to Harry Styles' album, I feel like it says something about me. It's very difficult, and I really haven't come to grasp with this. So besides this being some sort of public therapy session, what I'm hoping for us to do as we continue in our study of Humans Day is to talk about the present, which is the sign of the times, which is then a study of culture. Because culture, friends, permeates everything within society. It is the air that we breathe. And so, so how does that then interact with our faith, with we as the people of God? How do we engage with culture? So we will attempt to find our one direction today. I felt like you all would enjoy that more than I did, but I really feel like I think I enjoyed that the most. So um, when I die, daughter, you just, that needs to be, that whole, that song needs to be played at my funeral. And then my love for Harry Styles needs to be expressed there too. All right, culture. Let's start off with a working definition, a definition that actually um, engages with us as people of faith. I would say that culture is the secondary environment that humanity builds upon creation. So understand this culturally, is that if we believe in the origin of a creature, uh, of a creator, somebody who made everything then, then he made everything, yet culture is what we as humanity form, and that includes things like language, habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social organizations, inherited artifacts, technical processes, and values. So if that is the construct upon all that God has made, and, and if it is affected by humanity, so we create all sorts of things, right? So as much as language exists, we understand that language developed in form because of what humans have made it to, right? Like, I, I, I don't believe that God ever would have created anything in terms of, like, on fleck, right? It just does not work out that way because we humans did that. And here is then, we have to look at then the way that, the, that culture is defined by those who don't see a, a creator God being over the universe. It has to be explained. And within the theory of evolution, this is one of the t most difficult things for them to come to grips with. Because culture, by its nature, is not important. 
Like the evolution of our societies as it has to deal with, you know, like animals adapting to their, their environments or, or the way that we were able to escape the origins of our sapien roots and become human beings. Like those things evolve, but then how do you explain culture? And I have to deviate into another author right here, but have to look at Richard Dawkins um, who, who's a staunch new atheist, and actually the year I was born wrote this book called The Selfish Gene. And um, maybe you've heard of Dawkins, and so again, this book is more than 40 years old, but Dawkins' point in writing it was to say, if this universe has no creator, then how do you explain culture? And what's interesting, and you, you, you might see this engage with your life, is the way that he explained this was the, the creation of a term he called the meme. Now, we know memes today, and I unfortunately brought no examples of that, but if you were ever on the internet, you know what a meme is, right? It's like a picture with some sort of phrase that, that you post on your Facebook wall or you retweet because you think that it's humorous. And poor Dawkins created this deeper term and now today, you know, it's just the picture of success kid, right? Like it's, it's much more robust than that. But understand what he says a meme is, is a cultural construct that we make that is a way by which we explain the world and that it transmits like a virus. So in his view, culture is like a virus that can jump from person to person, and its success over generations speaks to our need to continue to evolve. Really in-depth, and it's a place that evolutionists really struggle. Culture does not fit within this. But what we're going to see here right now is how um, Harari is trying to explain culture, specifically within the idea that Christians try to explain how um, we, we view feelings and emotions. So stick with me. I, I'm taking a left turn here, but we're going to come right back onto the road. This is from his book, Homo Deus. Harari writes, the idea that feelings are not to be trusted is not restricted to Christianity. At least when it comes to the values of feelings, even Darwin, Charles Darwin, author of the theory of evolution, of evolution and Dawkins might find common ground with St. Paul and St. Augustine. According to the selfish gene theory, that's what we just talked, that, that Dawkins invented. According to the selfish gene theory, natural selection makes people, like other organisms, choose what's good for the reproduction of their genes. And even if it's bad for them as individuals. Most males, this is his example, spend their lives toiling, worrying, competing, and fighting instead of enjoying peaceful bliss because their DNA manipulates them for its own selfish aims. Like Satan, DNA uses fleeting pleasures to tempt people and place them in its powers. So this is what he is grappling with here right here is the idea of culture and how it impacts us as human beings. We Christians... Harari offers, just explain it away as, you know, sin and Satan, when the reality, it is the complex neurons in your mind creating meaning and how we all do that collectively. I'm going to tell you, this is why it's fascinating to me, is that culture, I think, is a key issue with which the evolutionist struggles to make their case. So again, what he's saying is that this cultural stuff that we create, it's just for the betterment of society. And I think that's a horrible case, right? I mean, because that's evidence perfectly in peanut butter jelly time. 
And by the way, I, I had the GIF all loaded up, and um, then I realized I export them as pictures. So he was going to be dancing during this point of it. So just imagine. I don't know if you ever, does, does everybody know peanut butter jelly time? If not, Google it and your week will be ruined. But it's the idea that this little cultural nuance is much more easily explained from a Christian perspective because we're just like, you know, Ecclesiastes, everything's meaningless and humanity's really good at that, as opposed to an evolutionist trying to say, well, this is something that we've created some by which to explain ourselves. There is no value in peanut butter jelly time, and God's okay with that. But this is what I want us to do this morning as we, we continue to look at culture and what that means. That's where I want us to open up the scriptures and we are going to be in Acts chapter 17. And we're going to see an interaction with the Apostle Paul. Understand that Paul uh, was one of the first leaders in the church. Paul lived after Jesus and we don't think he had any direct interaction. But he persecuted the church and then the scriptures tell us that Paul had a religious experience where Jesus confronted him of that. Jesus made him blind and then and through that experience, he became to be one of the most influential followers of Jesus that has ever lived. So what we have in this book of Acts, that is in the New Testament, is the stories of how the church started. And a lot of that centers around Paul taking this message all over the Mediterranean world, the known world at the time. So today we are in Acts chapter 17. And I have the text up here. Read along in your Bible. I'm just going to read this out loud for us. So this is Acts chapter 17, verses 16. In 17, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day. So you have Paul, like the chief Christian, who was in the city of Athens. And maybe we remember this through ancient history, that Athens, capital of Greece, that that was the, the Macedonian uh, Greco empire that reigned before the Romans. It was still highly influential. As Paul was traveling upon the Mediterranean, he found himself in Athens waiting for some people. And he noticed that the city was just fully idolatrous. So we can't be deceived that it's not like Paul was like, oh, oh no, that's, that's craziness, right? Like, there's too many idols, I've just got to leave town. He's distressed because he's saying, look, if they are worshiping idols, they are so far from understanding a creator God. So Paul had two different tacks of trying to spread the message of Jesus, usually, when he went into towns. The number one thing he would always do is find the synagogue. Because within Jewish theology, they were always seeking the Messiah. Jesus was that Messiah. So Paul's like, you're this close. Let me have these conversations. The second tack that he would take was very rare, but we see it here in Athens. Where Paul said, I'm not just going to talk to the Jews. I'm going to talk to the God-fearing Greeks. And what this meant, basically, was he was talking to people seeking something more. They didn't buy into this idea that there were all these different gods. They believed maybe in the concept of one God, but they couldn't place it there. And Paul starts these conversations with them. Okay, but this is the interesting thing though, is that he is repeating a message that has its roots, and even from Judaism to Christianity, they're talking about a Messiah. It's not like there was much change, but what we see from those who subscribe to an evolutionist perspective is that they disagree with the idea of religion because they think it's malleable, that it is always subject to change. Harari talks about this in Homo Deus. 
Harari says, every culture has its typical beliefs, norms, norms, and values, but these are in constant flux. They are always changing. Culture may transform itself in response to changes in the environment or through interaction with neighboring cultures, but cultures also undergo transitions due to their own internal dynamics. Even a completely isolated culture existing in an ecologically stable environment cannot avoid change. Unlike the laws of physics, which are free of inconsistencies, every man-made order is packed with internal contradictions. Cultures are constantly trying to reconcile these contradictions, and this process fuels change. So again, there, there is not necessarily a conflict between science and faith, but sometimes it is created by people. Oftentimes it's created by Christians, but I would offer here is that this is creation, created by somebody from an evolutionist perspective. And that conflict is, is that they see science as immutable, right? And immutable means never changing. And that is why logic tends to reign supreme because something is consistent. There are those who believe that religion, faith, specifically Christianity, are nothing different than anything else in culture. Right? That, that Christianity is equal to Harry Styles and that who he was at the beginning of his career in 2010 will be different than what it will be in 2030 and that you know, in the same way that he is subject to change his artistry, so too that religion is subject to change. But this is what's fascinating is that's not what we see in the New Testament. And there's consistency within the practice of Scripture. Usually those changes that receive the critique are what we Christians, those you know, far-strung evangelicals, it's what we change to make it palatable to us. So we say, this is what God wants, but really it's not scriptural, it's more preference. Okay, so recognize that the idea that, that, that the world exists this way and that Harari can say it's subject to change, it makes sense if your starting point is the same place. What's the starting point of the evolutionists? That the world is 13.8 billion years old, that there's no purpose or reason from a creator, that it's all happenstance. From that perspective, if the universe is 13.8 billion years old, the idea of a religion or faith or culture being consistent like ours is just over a few thousand years, it seems minuscule, it seems small, it seems unimportant. So again, what, what he's saying here is that, look, faith, religion, it's just like culture. And culture subject to change as tastes change. But here's something that's fascinating about Christianity. Is Christianity does not attempt to become culture. Christianity attempts to go into it. Christianity, our faith, attempts to permeate it. So read with me, if you will, as we're going to look through Acts chapter 17, then verses 18, and that's not those 12, 18 to 21. Different philosophers, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begin to debate with Paul. And some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remark, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to Paul, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So basically, they're like, you know, it would be like... <laughs> Facebook today, you know, is the Areopagus, this place where everybody wants to present ideas and listen to ideas. In ancient Athens, the Areopagus now, there's nothing left, but it was this hill, and we have artist renderings of what it would look like. 
And this was where ideas went to be shared in a public forum and where they would eventually spread. Paul, who is talking about the gospel, he's trying to tell the city of Athens, who is nowhere near being even receptive to the message of Jesus. He's speaking this, and it's so foreign they don't understand it. So they're like, look, come to our Oropagus. This is the place where ideas are spread and talked and discussed. We want you to be here, and this will gain a hearing. Now that is something that I think is powerful for you and I. Because we need to see that in the same way, these different worldviews and faiths and options should at least deserve a hearing within our presence. Okay, if Christianity in itself is not robust enough that it can withstand people who think differently, then it's no faith at all. You'll see that in some believers, mostly that, you know, what I would say, that evangelical uh, extreme of it, where it's just like, no, God said it, and that's it, right? Like, God said it, I believe it, there's no other conversation. There are competing ideologies, and if we really believe that Jesus and this faith is so strong, then we shouldn't fear the telling of that. There are Christians who do, and I'm going to say, they're wrong, they need to open up and have these conversations. But again, I, I have to show that as much as that tolerance needs to be done for us the Christians, is that so many times the evolutionist does not have that tolerance for what we believe. Again, this is one of the things that I would critique Harari for, is that he even sets up to this point where he says, how can we distinguish what is biologically determined from what people merely try to justify through biological myths? Their culture, what they believe... A good rule of thumb is biology enable, culture forbids. Biology is willing to tolerate a very wide spectrum of possibilities. It's culture that obliges the people, uh, it's, excuse me, it's culture that obliges people to realize some possibilities while forbidding others. And man, I would just love to unpack that statement because, and you guys are just like, Steve, it's another wordy quote right here and you're excited about that. That's fascinating because what he's saying is that the reason that evolution wins is because it's consistent it never changes, right? It's immutable, that word. And the problem is, is that culture, religion, always changes just to make biology do what it wants to do. And friends, it's just not true at all. And I would offer even is that biology and sometimes science is not objective in itself. And it becomes used for people to, to, for their own platform. And yes, of course, we've seen it. Christianity does that. But recognize that the other side of the spectrum is no more objective than what we are grappling with today. What we want is a hearing. And what we see so many times is, is that your faith doesn't even deserve a hearing because it it's just a myth. It's culture. It's something that's created. But what we would say, if we really believe in Jesus and believe that our faith can stand up to the critique, what we should say is that we want to have a conversation at the Oropagus. We want to be able to put Christianity on display, just like with all these other thoughts, because we think it reigns supreme. And Jesus himself advocates for that. In John chapter 8, verse 32, there's this, you know, everybody usually knows this verse as, the truth will set you free. But there's also this aspect that we don't quote Jesus within this verse. It's that then we will know the truth. That that involves knowledge and processing. 
if there are truths in other world views that are not Christian, right? So if there is a truth within science, if there is a truth in Buddhism, okay, we don't need to be repulsed by that because all truth is God's truth. And our faith stands up to that call, that idea that it can be shared in this forum. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. We don't tell this story enough because it offers this view of Christianity that is, that is very open and broad and diverse, but, but we prefer to look at laws and say, this is the very worst about it. I'm telling you, friends, it, it, it all is beautiful, but Acts 17 really shows how our faith can be discussed in culture. Acts chapter 17, verse 22 and 23, if you will. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, that's the NIV, it used to just be idols. So I looked at your idols. I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and that's what I'm going to proclaim to you. Don't get caught up in that translation. Like we're, So Paul just called them ignorant. That's, that's not what he is saying. It's not like we would call somebody ignorant. What he is saying here is that there is something that you don't know about this unknown God, and I'm going to teach it to you. So look at this, okay? This is what's fascinating about what the Apostle Paul does. He gets the hearing among the thought leaders of the day. He has a chance to talk about Jesus, okay? And notice the, 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 the tact that he takes in that opportunity. Because many often when we want to argue about faith or argue against other ideologies, we begin with ourselves, right? We're like, well, let me tell you about the Bible or let me tell you about Jesus. Paul actually inverses that process altogether. When he gets his hearing, he says, you know what, friends, I've been in your city a few days. Really nice place. Lots of idols. Like, you've got, got idols for every day of the week, of every hour of the day. And just to make sure you have this idol to the unknown God, to make sure your bases are covered. And by the way, that's something that historically talked through. There was an earthquake in Athens years before this. And they had all of these idols up. And they're like, who did we piss off? That we didn't have the right idol up to the certain god. And they then installed this statue to an unknown god to make sure that all the bases were covered. What Paul uses that then as an opportunity. He's like, you, you know, you're, he, he doesn't say, you guys are pagans. You guys are disgusting. What you believe is dumb. No, he says, I see that you're... You're religious. You're spiritual. You're seeking to the point that you have your bases covered and you even have a statue for an unknown God. Let me try to explain that to you. Now, as we talk of the spread of ideas... And what Christianity is, right? A worldview, an idea, something that, you know, again, humans grapple with. When we see Paul's approach here, it is really an approach of humility. I hope you see that because we even talk about this. Some of us read Paul and we're like, was Paul just arrogant? Was he a jerk? And I'm just telling you is that, you know, take somebody on singular days and you'll get impressions of them. But overall, Paul loved the Lord and he loved people and he tried to present that humbly. If he was merely trying to be right, Paul would have started off in saying, in the Oropagus, saying, y'alls are going to hell. I have the right way. You know, respect. Right? Like, that's it. But that's not what he says. He says, Let, let's talk a little bit about this. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about what you believe. 
And I'll show you where Jesus is at in that. Man, that's a different way of presenting idea than sometimes Christianity is perceived. Something I take issue with Harari just in general. He, he talks about thoughts and thoughts permeating, but I think this speaks directly to the case. Harari writes, and this is small print, so stick with me. Ideas, people, goods, and technology spread more easily within the borders of an empire than in a politically fragmented region. Often enough, it was the empires themselves which deliberately spread ideas, institutions, cultures, and norms. One reason was to make life easier for themselves. It's difficult to rule an empire in which every little district has its own set of laws, its own form of writing, its own language, and its own money. Standardization was a boon to emperors. So really, again, he's not talking about Christianity right here like with the words, but he so is. Because the popular view of critics about Christianity is that it was just created to control the masses. And it was a tool for the people in power to keep people believing certain things that made them easy to rule. It's interesting too is that that's just it's really this piece of half truth that has continued to be spun around as fact. Because even he talks here as the end is like emperors love this. Do you realize that the most powerful emperors who ever reigned of the world predominantly ruled before Christianity was even prevalent. They all liked to, and we talked about last week, this idea in the 4th century that Constantine nationalized Christianity. But friends, that, that is just a, a singular moment that is overplayed within this overarching narrative, which is that religion is created to control you. That Christianity is abhorrent because it's, it, it's less about this faith that we live out. It's not about spirituality, but really it is us being controlled. And again, this is this idea that, no, it's not about that, friends. It, it's liberating. It's freedom. It's this knowledge of the truth that changes who you and I are. I want to go through the, the next part of the verse here. And boy, this is long, too. I'm giving you lots of quotes, but will you stay with me for this one? Because I, I love this. So Paul gets his one shot to stand among the most brilliant people who have ever lived at that point and to explain what Christianity is. I just want to read that whole explanation right here. We are in Acts chapter 17. It's verses 24 through 31. I hope you have a Bible. I'm going to read it. But if not, just when Paul is asked, what do you believe? This is his response. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, God gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far away from any of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. And as some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. And therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. For in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. 
brilliance respecting brilliance, right? Like some of you have read some amazingly profound things. Maybe it's a quote that you even have tattooed on your body. Maybe it's a, you know, something that's hanging on the mirror that you read every day. You see ideas and you respect them. I'm telling friends, wisdom from 2,000 years ago, that is utterly brilliant. Because when called to defend his faith, he did so in a way that talked about the greatness of God and yet brought it around to individualism. What Paul always does is takes culture and uses that as a vehicle to talk about Jesus. Like I could, again, if I'm really putting this thing out, I could have sermon on sermon on just what he wrote right there. One of the things I love most about it is in the quotes that he has in verse 28. Basically, he was taking popular um, literature of the day and bringing that in the conversation to push forward Jesus. Friends, that's brilliant. Because again, the people with whom we talk to about faith, they, they have their own truths. And if there's a way you can see where that truth aligns with who Jesus is when he believes, that's when people change. People don't change when you tell them, this is what you're supposed to believe. But if you can help move them from where they are to where they could be in Christ, friends, then we see true change. So it's how then we view culture. And again, I I talk about so many things within polar opposites, but I think it's very true in this case. And this is where the tension comes from. The idea that the evolutionists, again, we talked about this previous weeks. These are terms that we're using. They're just very generalized. It doesn't mean all or any, but just if we can look at the polls. The evolutionist says culture is everything. It defines us. It's a search for truth, and truth is what they see, and truth is what they believe, and it's what they hold hold to, right? The issue with many Christians, what we would say the evangelical, is culture is nothing and it distracts us from God. And I would tell you that neither of these extremes are healthy. It's an unhealthy way to view culture. So how do we, as a follower of Jesus, need to view culture? Let's look at another set of polar opposites. I think this is one of the things. Is that within culture, we have the opportunity for imitation. We have the ability just to replicate what exists there. See, remember from our definition at the beginning is that culture is a human construct. And as such then, it is removed from God on the point that these things of culture, you know, they they can be positive, but sometimes there are things that are not. If we live in culture and continually try to imitate it, then we're going to find that we're not walking in the way of the Lord, Right? So just our desire to look like, and again, biblically, culture is always called as the world, right? So if we're just living in the world and we see no definition between what it means to live culturally and where God is at, then we're immersed in it to the point that we can't see him at all. Do not live your lives in culture. That means when you see fake news, or even news that is not fake, that could be true, that instead of, you know, just ultimately dismissing it all as farcical, that we grapple with things. The Christian path is a thoughtful path. And we don't like that because we like to have things on autopilot. Yeah, have your habits on autopilot, that you brush your teeth in the morning, that you, you shower, you know, that you do all these different things, but friends, your faith cannot be that. It's active. You have to determine it. And again, what some Christians then, and I would offer that, that polarity is what the evolutionist tends to do, is that they are one with culture and the culture is one with them. See how I used Star Wars, but I didn't there as a cultural variant. Anyone? 
drink that with a straw. The opposite side of that then, and I think I switched that up because I put imitation, so that's not the word. Um, it's isolation is the word. That isolation is when you and I stay away from culture because we believe that it's all evil and sinful, right? It's funny that many of the evangelicals I knew back in the age 90s and stuff, the way they dealt with that was Christian music. You know, it's like, no, you can't listen to rock and roll, but you can listen to Striper. Like, you know, DC Talk. You know, just, uh, you know, Switchfoot was, eh, they kind of love Jesus, right? There was, these, there was this media that existed that was like Christian alternatives to that, but the irony was it was still a cultural variance, right? Like rock and roll is a creation, it's a culture, it's music. But what these Christians said is, no, you have to live in isolation of that culture, separate from it, because it will lead you astray. And friends, that's not biblical either. It is not biblical for us then to dismiss the world because if we have totally dismissed that, then we will not have the ability to engage with God's creation, those people that he is desperately seeking. So if you just say, hey, I can just, you know, church is my life, I go to Bible studies, I go to whatever event they have, and that is my engagement. No, that isolationist perspective is not helpful either. So what do we do as we try to live this way? Three different things. I didn't make this up. Uh, another church leader made this up, uh, constructed this, but I think it reflects very well. Is that, and, and when we call it taxonomy of culture, you know, just you try to use big words to show that we can, and it's not limited to the evolutionist, but this idea that how do we view culture? Number one, there's aspects of culture that we receive, like it's a gift, right? And by the way, these aspects of culture, it's not like you can just say, nope, nope, not going to do it. Language is one of those fundamental aspects of culture that, you know, you can say, I'm just not going to speak English, right? Okay, well, choose another language. Or even if you go back to Latin, fine, that's a cultural variance. You don't get the idea to just say, I'm not going to receive that. Usually technology, right? Even the Amish tried to stake out this existence where it's like, no, we will be separated from uh, technology altogether. They still engage with culture up into a 19th century, right? It's not like they're just like, no, we're going to just use rocks and, you know, like, that's it. Like, no, they still have technology. And the funniest thing, too, is that they've gone even further than that where you'll see that the Amish actually use cell phones now. It's really mind-boggling. And, and, and actually, they'll even ride at vehicles if somebody else is driving. So if you're looking to start your new Uber business, find Amish country. There's a demand right there. There are aspects of culture that we do not get to choose between, Right? They're just generalized. We function in them. They're a part of our lives. It would be like, I'm not going to deal with error. It's what we have to do. There's things in culture that we just merely are forced to receive. But there are things in culture that we are called to reject. And again, for us being a more progressive group of Christians, this is something that we do not take as seriously as we all do. Right? Is that not all culture is edifying the problem is, is that, and there's obvious ones here, right? Like, just to let you know, as you're trying to figure out your spiritual walk, it's not like, oh, this is healthy pornography, right? Like, this is, this is good pornography. Like, you know, you won't find something called Christian pornography, which, you know what, I didn't even bother to look because my, you know, like, my, net, my browser would just be ding, ding, dinging and stuff. But you just have to understand is that there's aspects of culture that we are forced to reject, some of those are easy, right? 
some of those are more nuanced, and we have to look at it. Especially, man, you know, I know some of you marched yesterday uh, for the me, you know, you know, for the women's march, and there's this Me Too movement, and it's amazing that we can stand up. But I gotta say, friends, is that at the same time, our society is just really inundated right now with these cultural offerings that speak exactly the opposite to what that is, but we let up off the hook because it's art. Right? Like, this is one of the things. I watch many of things where you're like, Steve, that movie has language or violence or partial nudity. And, you know, there's always that tension that we have to live in. And, and we have to grapple with that. But, man, there's some shows out now to, like, that are out now, and usually they're on some sort of subscription service, that are just like, you know, just have violent rape scenes within them. And sometimes we're like, oh, but the story is so good. That's BS, people. So we have to say, what is culturally good? Like, how do I, you know, again, I can't redeem pornography. I don't know how I watch a show that redeems violent rape that is just really just, you know, for entertainment. I I don't understand that. And what I would say is that in those instances for us then, we have to see, like, am I living consistently then? You know, if I'm very much about, we do need to, you know, as human created beings, make sure that men cannot treat women in ways that have been perpetrated here, not just in recent years, but for decades before this. If we're going to stand up against that, but we're going to have, you know, but we're going to, I'll just, I'm the a-hole in this group, but I'll just say it. But if I'm going to watch Game of Thrones and say, oh, it's such a great story, you know, I don't know, I've got to, I've got to come into contact with that. What does that mean for me as a person? And again, the whole point of this today was not just to say, I guess I need to stop watching Game of Thrones. No, you need to wrestle with that, right? You need to say, what's the consistency there? Am I watching culture? Am I engaged in it because it's entertaining? Or even that, now maybe you do watch that, but you're doing so in such a way to be able to push people around you who are far from God to have conversations about that that puts it to Jesus. If you have like the gospel according to Game of Thrones like that you're writing, I'd love to read it, but then I'd have to watch Game of Thrones. You have to explain it to me. But there's things we need to reject. Is that point fair? Did I make a little bit of us feel awkward there? Because that's my job. Good. Can I tell you the highest version of this? Of what we get to do in culture? is that we get to redeem. And that's something that as we live in culture, we need to think about constantly. Okay, and I will tell you, that's why I'm incredibly media engaged. That's why I'm always trying to read up on what the latest thing is. You know the thing that I just don't understand at all right now is like gamer philosophy. Like, do you realize that people show up to Stadia and pay money to go watch people play video games now? Like, and it's a thing And then people will, some of the highest rated videos on YouTube are people videotaping themselves playing games and then talking about that. Like some of you are like, really? I'm like, seriously, it's a thing. I don't understand it, right? Okay, and and Zane's like the same thing. He goes, just like football. Okay, I don't understand that either. But those things aren't inherently evil. Those aren't things that we have to say, nope, uh, video games are of Satan. We have to reject that. Football, you know, because of the CTE is of the devil, we have to reject that. I don't know how we come down to that. But what we need to make sure is that we're engaging in culture. Are we doing it just as a way to form some new idols around us, right? Like, friends, I love the sports as much as anybody. But when I like that experience more than I value my pursuit of what God is doing, then I am worshiping culture as an idol. I am not seeing how I can redeem it. 
But this is one of the things, though, is that culture then has this opportunity to be redeemed, just like I did to Harry Styles' signs of the time at the beginning of this message. But just as you get to do, because, friends, it's another version of language. It's something that we use to communicate with other people. And if you are able to use that and use it for Christ, then that's something valuable. And here, again, as we talk about this spectrum, for us in this more, you know, we live, you know, much of us more progressively minded, we live in more progressively minded communities, it's impossible for us to be believers that are going to impact the city and our community and to isolate ourselves from culture. Because if we do so, we're going to isolate ourselves from the very people that we love and want to reach for Jesus. So what we have to do is be in the continual process of redemption. So this is what I would just do this week. This is a, you know, this is a very pragmatic time, but I think it speaks to who we are as human beings. Is that this week, pay attention to your cultural consumption. What are you listening to on podcast and music? What are you watching on the television? Who are you following on Twitter? You know, what posts do you like on Facebook? These types of things. And try to run it through this just aspect. If we're like, do I just really like this? It's what I want? Is it something that I need to just reject altogether and come in line of, of, of who God has called me to be as a human being? Or do I need to take this next step and move to redeem this culture? Because again, Christianity, friends, is more robust than culture. But the gospel works throughout it. And friends, this is evidenced as it's spread religion often just spreads culturally in certain places where there's seed for it to grow and then other places it's usually, you know, non-existent. Bold statement which might be false, so I would love it to be, you've proved me wrong, but I would offer that nearly all the Hindus in the United States today did not come to Hinduism because of a religious experience here, but it is a cultural variance that's familial that is passed down to generations that came to the United States. And it still sits separately as a culture. I say that to counteract, though, is that I know in Hindu cultures, in Buddhist cultures, in all these different cultures where the gospel has been able to work with culture to become flourishing just because they aren't at odds with each other. To be a good Christian, we don't have to reject culture altogether, but we always need to be looking for opportunities to redeem this. What's the model for this, friends? The model? It's Jesus himself. I would be nothing but quintessential preacher to be able to end the service on this, but I think it's something that we need to really think about. It's more than just these words, but it summarizes this struggle. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's redemption, friends. And as we interact with culture, it's the opportunity before us. So do me a favor. This week, as you're out about living, look at the culture in which you're living and the culture that you're consuming and really ask the Lord to redeem that for his good, for something greater. Thanks for staying with me. Will you uh, pray with me? As we conclude. Heavenly Father, as we look at our humanity again this week and we look through your scriptures, we're reminded of the fact, Father, that we are just one of billions of people on this earth. 
and that over the globe and over the years there are, are limitless options of different cultural variances that people have clung too hard and sometimes it's nationalism you know sometimes it's an ideology sometimes it's just music father we ask that you use your spirit to convince us to see that Christianity is much much different that this view of the universe father is something that defines who we are at our very core as created beings here in your world to redeem the world. That's why we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love for us. We thank you for his perfect life. And Father, we thank you for his redeeming all things back to him. Allow us to be redeemed, Father, as much as we try to redeem those things in this world for the betterment of your kingdom. And all these things we give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.